banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of... Dude, 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 Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes. snafu the other day and some problems with our equipment so we lost a good bit of our recording so what you're going to get is me jim johnny m and adam umac talking a little bit about our collecting habits what we've been reading um stuff like that so we apologize for not being able to to take you with our uh in-depth analysis of the industry i think we're going to end up pushing that off for another time when we can all recollect our thoughts and have a good discussion Um, but so instead we've offered our special web exclusive uh, conversation right after the Battlestar Galactica series finale, so stay tuned for listening in on what we thought of the show right after it ended. Um, It'll run about 30-35 minutes, and that'll cut in about 35 minutes after um, the conversation you're about to hear. So, thanks again. Sorry for the mix-up. First of all, I'm going to go around the horn real quick and uh, take care of some business. Um, Jim, you got some Steel City Con news, if I am correct. Uh, could you talk about that, and what book are you currently reading as far as comics go? Okay, uh, Legion of Dudes will be in effect at the Steel City Con in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at the uh, Pittsburgh Indoor Sports Arena in Cheswick. It's a little bit out of town, but it's a really big place, really cool place. Um, we'll be there uh, hosting a trivia contest along with the Comic Geek Speak guys. Um, we'll also be uh, there affiliated with the Steel City Derby Demons. Uh, it'll be a great show. Anthony Daniels from uh, Star Wars uh, will be there, uh, the voice of C-3PO. And uh, Orly Shoshan, who played uh, Shock T in Revenge of the Sith, another Star Wars guest. The original Boomer from Battlestar Galactica. This is back when Boomer was a dude. Herbert Jefferson. And uh, Catherine Bach, original Daisy, will be there with the General Lee. So if you're a Dukes of Hazard fan, you can check that out, too. And Mick Foley, wrestling legend Mick Foley. So uh, that'll be April 24th, 25th, 26th. If you're in town on the 24th, Friday the 24th, come on by Gypsy Cafe uh, for the Geek Throwdown. Free food, uh, beverages, fun, Guitar Hero. Uh, well, the CGS guys will be here. Sean Pryor from PKD Media will be here. Uh, Chad Sacconi from Subculture will be here. It'll be a big Geek Throwdown, so come on down. I'll be starting around 9.30 or 10 o'clock on Friday, April 24th. Okay, and that's all the pimpage. And I just got done reading Showcase Volume Number 3, Justice League of America. Man, that's some cheesy Silver Age stuff. That's pretty good. And I would also like to add, whenever you said in effect earlier, I have not heard, like, weird colloquial phrases like in effect, which made me think of Rex in effect's song Rump Shaker, which made me think of Paul's Boutiques from the Beastie Boys' Shake Your Rump, and which made me miss my old vinyl collection. So I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit. Uh, I have... Just finished the first, what is it, volume one of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And having never read that before, having never read horror comics before, uh, I'm sold. Jim, we were talking a couple weeks ago about uh, the one issue which featured uh, Jason Woodrow, the Floronic Man, who is a, which is an awesome DC character. And The Anatomy uh, Lesson. That oh was my uh, gosh. Moore's first issue. It's probably one of the single best comics I've ever read in my life. It's yeah, awesome. can you can you give everybody the rundown here about like the because like you can speak to this better than I could about Alan Moore's Swamp Thing because I've obviously just read like eight issues. So like what's the, what's the long and short of uh, his run on Swamp Thing? Well, he pretty much and I just want everyone out there in Radio Land to know I do not get any money from Alan Moore. I'm just a fan. He basically uh, took the a. Uh, uh, 
character created by Len Wein and Bernie Wrights in the 70s as kind of a horror pulp type character and turned it around and almost made it like a, a postmodern uh, horror story. Uh, it started out by totally reconstructing what Swamp Thing uh, think, knows about himself and thinks he knows about himself and proves it all to be totally wrong totally tears the character down and then rebuilds him and then does a whole riff on American horror. Uh, one arc is about uh, werewolves. One arc is about vampirism. And just and it just culminates in this giant uh, war between heaven and hell in, in the climactic uh, double issue. And it was just one of the best runs in comics, man. It just I'm, I'm glad you're finally reading it. It's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like Preacher, but with lots of flowers and moss, um, which is cool. Plus you got that uh, uh, Steve Bissett and John Toddleben art, which is just so textural and was really ahead of its time at that point. It's just really, there was no comic like it. I have this kind of weird back history with Swamp Thing, because when I was in Boy Scouts way, way back in the day down in Florida, um, one of our uh, scoutmasters that was helping my dad out was actually an editor. Now, I don't know if it was the Swamp Thing movie. Was there a TV show? Not a that Swamp I Thing know TV of. Show? Yeah, yeah there, was. there was. Okay, because yeah, I'm trying to figure out, because you know how, like, when you're, like, 12, you just have, like, images of things and not, like, a real clear, cogent thought? And I was trying to remember if it was, like, for the movie or, or for what, but, uh, yeah, I'm kind of interested in, in it. I kind of balked at the at the price tag, first of all, but I, I was real happy I, I jumped in with it. Um, Hey, John and Russ, what are you guys reading right now? Well, um, I guess it would be more appropriate to say what I'm not reading I video games have been taking up so much of my free time lately that I have a bunch of stuff sitting in my reading spot. Um, I have the three volumes of Criminal by Ed Brubaker, Brubaker which I started um, and love, but I just I haven't dug in. I have the Elephant Men first volume, which is kind of like almost an omnibus sized book sitting there. Uh, I did finally get my first volume of Preacher, but I haven't started that. And uh, I started getting my comics monthly rather than bi-monthly or bi-weekly, which is, I guess, something we're going to talk about later on. But uh, So I haven't gotten many floppies recently, so I'm kind of in a reading rut. But I did start The Criminal, and it's uh, it's pretty good stuff, as I was expecting from uh, Mr. Brubaker. I just wanted to ask John if uh, how he felt about Brubaker leaving Daredevil and Andy Diggle taking over, because I know he's a big fan of that run. Yeah, I mean, it had to come to an end at, at, at some point. I mean... Hopefully, you know what I was sad like when Bendis left and Brubaker has obviously blown it out of the park. So, um, you know, hopefully, I mean, Diggle's stuff is cool. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm cautiously excited, but I am sorry to see uh, Brubaker go. Definitely. Don't you think, in a lot of ways, that um, Daredevil's kind, kind of, no, don't take me literally on this, but kind of a crime comic to begin with because of the whole Law and Order aspect of. Uh, of him, uh, you know, being an attorney. And my other thing is, have you really had a lot of experience with crime comics? Uh, no, I haven't had a lot of experience with crime comics. And I do agree that Daredevil is one. It's almost, if you go back and read, like, older Daredevil, like in the, you know, the even the Miller stuff and, and pre even to that, the thing that was always a problem with Daredevil was you couldn't buy his powers. Like, you know, Blind Man, you know, it just didn't, it just didn't seem to work, and he could totally have no powers in the Brubaker Daredevil stuff. He's really just like a vigilante-type character. I mean, that's how I feel about it anyway. He really sold it for me. I mean, that's it. <laughs> Russ, you're up, and I'm going to take a wild guess and say something X-related. Yeah, I mean, sort of. I've been doing a lot of catch-up. I had uh, 
I had a gap of, of a couple months in my DCBS string just due to some some crazy financial weirdness, and then I, I missed a, a couple orders. So I've been kind of going back to the LCS and kind of plugging holes. So I've had a bunch of stuff that, that, that I've been holding off on. So I've been doing a lot of catching up on the floppies, really, really liking X-Force, uh, the new X-Force. It's, it's really, really good. You know, I thought at first it wasn't something, I, a concept I'd really get into, but it's really turned out to be pretty good. Um, the other thing, I've, I've, I've been picking up the hardcovers for the Green Lantern series, the current one. So I finally uh, yes. got in my, yeah, I finally got in my shipment, uh, you know, Green Lantern Secret Origin, um, which is which is really, really good. Um, I really enjoyed that. I, I stopped getting the Green Lantern floppies after Sinestro Core War, and I bought the Sinestro Core hardcovers. So then I've also, I went on um, a couple sites and picked up the uh, Hal Jordan Wanted trade. When I ordered the Wonder Woman Blu-ray, I also picked up the uh, Watching the Watchmen, the Chip Kid book. So I've been going through that and really, really enjoying it, and just kind of looking, um, looking through all the notes and source material and stuff. And then lastly, I pulled out my Set of Sword of Conan Volume One from Dark Horse, um, which is all the the black and white reprints of uh, the Set of Sword of Conan series from Marvel in the 70s. So it's all old Barry Windsor Smith old Roy Thomas. It's just really good stuff. I mean, it's, I remember it as a kid, you know, being, it was kind of, I think, oversized, like magazine size almost. Um, That's black right. and, and, Yeah, it was originally printed in black and white too. So so the fact that it's in black and white doesn't take anything away from it because that's how it was originally done. But some really good storytelling um, and, and, and the art is just really good to kind of see some of these guys that in the 80s, you know, became pretty prominent like Barry Windsor Smith, you know, seeing their first, this was, you know, some of their first work they did. Um, just, just really solid stuff. So I'm, I'm a little behind on the Savage Sword of Conan volumes from Dark Horse. So I think I have now. So they're pretty cheap too. They're like they retail for like 15 bucks. So as soon as I get plowed through this one, I'll probably start um, start backfilling the other ones. It's funny you mentioned the Conan stuff. Um, I got a trip planned here very, very shortly to go to the Frank Frazetta Museum, which is up around Ken's neck of the woods. So uh, we'll have some stuff on the website up there. Um, I'm you know, pretty positive of. Hey, Russ, I had a quick question about uh, the X titles and the X books. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with multiple X titles out there, X Men. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna rattle some off. X Men, Uncanny X Men, X Force, Excalibur, whatever. Okay, like for someone who's completely new to the X world corner of the Marvel universe, like, is there any clear delineations between the teams, like? Other than the fact that Excalibur's in Europe, does like what's the difference between like X Force and Uncanny? Other than the roster, is the, do they have any like? Do you know what I mean? How it's like? Are they yeah. Black Ops or like what? Yeah. What's what's yeah, the story? Yeah, exactly. On? Yeah, X Force is pretty. It, it, it's really taking a turn in the X book. It's hardcore. It's the costumes are different. The roster is different. Um, and it's what it is, is is Cyclops has finally decided after Messiah Complex that they can't play a nice guy anymore, and they have to. There, there, there are specific targets that he wants eliminated. He wants them killed, and he's totally keeping this this force secret from everyone. He's not telling Emma. He's not telling any of the other, you know, the other team. And it's it's brought in. It's it's Wolverine. It's X23. It's Warpath. Wolfsbane. And then they brought in. Um, I forget what his name is, the healer that was in uh, the new X-Men book, um, and then Archangel. They've actually brought back Archangel, um, and it's it's Warren, it's regular Angel, and when he gets kind of kind of the Hulk syndrome, when he gets all you know hopped up and angry, he, he gets the vapors. He, he reverts back to his blue skin, steel winged um, Archangel 
form, and then you know when he kind of calms down, he goes back to it. So it's it's been kind of interesting to see that uh, transition and him going back and forth. And they've done some cool stuff, but yeah, they're literally you know out for blood. I mean, it's a really different take you know for anything in the X universe previous. So that's you know that's a big delineation from there. The big thing with Uncanny now, Matt Fraction is the sole writer on it. For a while, it was Drew Baker, then it was Drew Baker and Fraction, and now Fraction's taken over, and the team's moved to San Francisco. Kind of a little funky, not bad. Um, I'm still trying to get into it. Are um, they in the cast? Legacy district? is kind of the the post Messiah complex. Xavier's been shot in the head, and he's kind of going back on his like his his solo journey to kind of recover his memories and help some of the other characters along with with what's going on. And it's about to close out its big arc with the with the story with Professor X going to to find Rogue and really kind of relating to her the fact that he's never. You know, when when Rogue came into the X-Men, it was to kind of help her control her power and be able to touch people. He's never really been able to do that. So now it's kind of their kind of come-together meeting and talk about, you know, what his what he really, you know, was able to do with them and, and not able to do. And then X-Factor is just Peter David goodness. So, you know, a lot of crazy, funky stuff going on with Jamie Madrox and, and X-Factor. I, I heard there was a heck of a cliffhanger, I think at uh, number 40, that was supposed to be out of this world, so... Um, that's yeah, something that I'm kind of dancing around and contemplating getting, but I think that kind of speaks to one of the larger issues, which is about pricing and stuff. I just wanted to ask real quick: Are you reading yeah. the Warren Ellis Astonishing X-Men as well? When it comes out, yeah, I'm really not feeling that. You know, they kind of did that. You know, that's where they kind of got bitten on the butt, so to speak, with that whole Ghost Boxes thing, where they sold that 3.99 book and it only had like. I think eight or sixteen pages of new content, and they charge you three ninety nine for it. And it continued the story from Astonishing, so I'm not really sure why they didn't do it in Astonishing proper, unless it was just because Simone Bianchi was getting a little behind on art, and they just kind of flipped that book to the side so that they could get another artist on it. But it's just it's just a little weird. I, I've got a, I'm, I'm missing one issue. I started with twenty five, and I've got twenty five. 27 and 28, so I'm missing 26, and I have both issues of ghost boxes. But, yeah, at this point, I can kind of take it or leave it. I'm almost contemplating really just dropping it and maybe going to trades on that. That's too bad. I really enjoyed Whedon's run, as you know. We've talked about that before. But uh, 3 yeah. for 16 pages of content? Yeah, it was it was pretty brutal, and it got a lot of backlash. I mean, it, it, it got talked about on a lot of other shows. It got talked on the net. There's a lot of backlash, and it wasn't solicited that way either. And that's you know they they charge three ninety nine and talk about extra content, and it's it's questionable at best sometimes. We should just go ahead and segue into that now, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we got a lot of topics on tap for tonight. Um, I thought we'd maybe start with just um, our buying trends, like like us personally. What you know, where when we started you know collecting comics or got heavy into it, what were our our habits? How much did we buy and and how we've changed them, you know, somewhat recently and, and what we plan on changing them down the road. So I'll I'll go first. I, I got back in the comics pretty heavy in like nineteen ninety one, ninety two, really got the Superman. That kinda got piqued my interest back and in getting back into it. LCSs back then were giving pretty steep discounts on books. So um books were a lot cheaper. You know, they were still in the buck twenty five, buck fifty range. Um, and with a 30, 35% discount, it made, it made buying a lot of titles pretty attractive. And it was, it was before the real big trend to buy them for the trade. So I bought at that time probably, probably 50, 60 floppies a month easy. And it pretty much continued that trend, you know, it went up and down a little bit to current. Recently, I've really started to kind of tighten the belt a bit. I'm, I'm starting to run out of room. And, you know, just I start looking back on how much money I'm spending and what I re- where my tastes have changed. 
Um, and I've really gotten into, you know, nice hardcover collections. And so I really start and just think about if there's something that just I really, really can't live without to buy in floppy or I'm really just a strong proponent of the book and, and want to help support it, I'm pretty much, you know, kind of cutting back on my floppies. So um, long runs of stuff I'm keeping. But other than that, a lot of things I'm really cutting back and going to either, you know, when they solicit the hardcovers or solicit the trades um, and moving that way on it. And I think over time, I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see even more of that slide. So I'm down right now probably half as many floppies every month as I, as I used to get. I'm, I'm down to probably about 20, maybe 25 floppies a month. And then, you know, just depending on how the solicits go for the, for the trades and the hardcovers, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with my collecting habits. Uh, I guess I'll jump in. Um, I got back in probably about five or six years ago only now. Um, and I was really enjoying like going down to the LCS again and just grabbing whatever. So I probably, I, I probably started out grabbing like 25 to 30 floppies a month, just like every tie in to every event, every, you know, everything I could get my hands on. So that ended pretty quickly as I realized that a lot of the stuff was not good, A, and B, that it was way too expensive. So this is about the same time that I started checking out podcasts and everything. So I started hearing about DCBS and, you know, all these online companies. So I went that route. I, I started, you know, I, cutting it down a great deal just when I realized mostly the quality of, of a lot of the stuff was, was not happening for me. Um, so I cut my monthlies probably down in half, and I was shipping about – I was getting um, the bi-weekly shipping. So I never shipped every week. Um, so I did that for a while. Now I'm down to once a month, and I'm down to about, I'd say, six to eight floppies per month. And I've gone pretty much totally to the trade and hardcover, mostly because I like the presentation. I like the hardcovers on my shelf and – I like being able to flip through my favorite issues and refer to stuff without like pulling out boxes and bags and boards and you know all of that nonsense. So that's it about now. I'm not visiting a store regularly anymore and I'm about 6 to 8 a month plus hardcovers and trades. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I am uh not regular myself and I'm not talking uh, gastrointestinal. Um I'm always good for that. But uh I I um I'm I'm pretty much a trade person right now. I get five monthlies, which is what is it? Invincible, Walking Dead, Captain America, Green Lantern, and Green Lantern Corps. I mean, and everything else I'll support in trade. I think one of the biggest dilemmas that I've had lately is the Vertigo trades, because uh, I intentionally did not get Why the Last Man or Ex Machina um, in trade format because I know, son of a gun they're going to release them in, hard, in a hardcover format. So, like, that's really killing me, not picking up, like, um, the Fables trades. As much as I want to get that or Jack of Fables, the, uh, not the cheapskate in my brain, but, the, you know, the, the practical, uh, you know, everybody hold on to your purse strings uh, person to me is, like, I know it's only, you know, 10 bucks or 5 bucks with an online discount or whatever, but just knowing that I'll eventually have to toss those on eBay is actually more of a deterrent than just uh, w wanting to wait sometimes. So I guess, and I think this has a lot to do with release schedules too, you know, it, it's hard to anticipate what you're going to get when you're a trade person because you don't have that regularity with trades that you do with monthly issues. So, like, I got the Brubaker um, Gotham Central Volume 1 
what was that, like December or November, whenever that was in my um, monthly shipment. And I love it, but it's it's such a weird romance you have with trades because you can love it and you probably won't revisit that comic like you do with the monthly experience until, well, DC gets its act together with their trade release dates. I'm, you know, and it, it's a weird, it's a weird world not going to the local comic shop anymore. I mean, I can speak to, um, you know, the, the two that are, I guess my most local, cause I have like seven around here, which is weird. It's, it's weird not going to the store weekly, month, monthly in some cases too, but I, I get a lot more out of the online community and obviously the show with you guys than I ever did. You know, I think maybe that's that whole weird antisocial bit that comic book geeks get a rap for, but uh, there was never a real sense of community at any of my stores. And I think that that, more than anything, is not a rarity, but a real just strong commodity to have. And we're just not a together kind of group in this area as far as comic stores. Well, uh, since I'm the last one, I buy no floppies at all. In fact, the only floppies I get, I trade uh, brunch for, for a guy who works in my local LCS who comes in for brunch every now and again, he'll call and ask if there's anything I want to trade for food in my restaurant. <laughs> and that, that was things like uh, the last JSA annual with the Alex Ross cover uh, where they went to Earth 2. It's usually something pretty uh, you know, special to me or exciting. I uh, What I will do is I go for uh, trades and hardcovers. I either order them on, you know, at discount online or over eBay back when I did that or at half price books or whatever uh, as far as like buying brand new trades when they come out unless I can get a good discount on it I usually just wait and like you Adam I would rather have a giant like omnibus book of uh, you know a nice hardcover edition of a story you know done and pay a little more for it than have like you know eight or nine trades on my shelf I just I really I, I run my own business, and I don't have a lot of uh, um, disposable income, as it were. Um, as far as – I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I was out of the hobby. I got out of reading comics at about 87 or, or 88 for a few years because uh, I was in college, and I went to grad school, and I didn't have any money. And then in 91 and 92, I started watching the Batman animated series on Saturday mornings uh, and then the Superman series, and it made me realize what an affection I had for these characters. And the Spider-Man cartoon of the 90s and uh, the X-Men cartoon that came out about then, too. So I started uh, collecting action figures. Uh, and then from the action figures, that spun out back into comics. But as I said, I, I only buy trades and, and collected editions. Uh, I buy no floppies at all. And as far as the, like you were saying about the trade release thing, whatever, usually what I'll do is if I go to um, you know, a, an online service or I'll go to a, a con or a show, I'll spend, you know, a larger sum of money there and just parse those books over a long period of time. I mean, that's why I did when I went to New York Comic-Con. They had such deep discounts there. I just got two giant bags of trades and hardcovers, and I've been working my way th through that ever since. And it's been, what, a month, month and a half now. So that's that's my buying habits. I mean, uh, there are things that, you know, if I if I see in trade and it's a good discount online, I will buy, you know, as soon as it comes out. But I never, ever pay full price for anything. I want to know what you guys think of this real quick. I almost think that like what in like what Jim was just talking about like with the the I don't want to say trade program but the way that trades are released it's almost like you have to outthink 
the um, it's almost like you have to outthink the company because I'll put it to you like this. So we did um, a one-shot episode a couple uh, months back about Umbrella Academy, right? And it was just the first trade. And since that time when we did the original Umbrella Academy trade, they've released and solicited um, a total of three versions of just Volume One, along with the Volume Two, which is the you know the monthly six issue, whatever. Okay. So it, I, I feel that in a lot of ways you have to like really like strategize what's your attack plan with not only the collected editions but like Jim just said like the kind of collected edition because I, I look at it like this I think it's in a lot of ways it's like the DVD market because you know you can get the Criterion Collection Edition you can get the Director's Cut you can get the uh, special fan package cut. Or you can just get the widescreen version for, you know, 15 or 17 bucks. It's like, uh, you know, when I went to get Fight Club, the original three-disc set was, like, so ridiculously hard to find. But then they re-released it as just a regular theatrical release. And then, go figure, two years later, they re-released the three-disc set again. So, in, in part, I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense, but I can totally see them in their offices, in their ivory towers, planning out how much money they're going to bilk from us. I can give you a real good example. Uh, Alex Ross's uh, Justice miniseries that just came out from D.C., I think it was last year. Uh, right. they've, put it, they've put it out as three, three hardcovers over 12 issues. And uh, you know down the road they're going to come out with an absolute or an they're just edition. <laughs> they just oh. came out today. Oh, I didn't. I haven't read, read, been to Newsarama today, so I didn't know. But I mean, I knew <laughs> down the line, and I've wanted to read it all this time. And I hear it's a really cool, like take on the Super Friends or whatever. But yes, I, I knew it would eventually it would all come out in one volume. It's exactly what you're talking about. But you know that that is okay. First of all, that was 12 issues, which was uh, six issues a year for two years. Okay, then you figure a year for them to release all of the. Um, Hardcovers, and then they had to go through the last iteration, which was all three of the trades, and now we finally get the absolute, which is going to come out in November. I mean, that's that's bonkers, but I guess it's different strokes. I mean, you know, I, I've been personally holding out. I did get the floppies on that one though, because it was too cool to pass up. Well, yeah, I'm, so I'm going through a similar thing with Walking Dead. I mean. I, ju I jumped on Walking Dead really late. There were three of the nice hardcovers out before I had read any of it. So I, I buy those three hardcovers, you know, and I love it. So let me start buying the floppies because I could really see myself keeping up with this monthly. Well, guess what? Robert Kirkman doesn't put out his stuff monthly. He puts it out whenever the heck he feels like it. So now I'm, you know, now I'm getting really frustrated trying to buy the floppies. So what do I do? I wait for a trade. But am I gonna, buy, am I gonna buy this trade when I know I'm gonna want the nice hardcover? And then what do they do? They put out a freaking compendium. That's what I'm getting. <laughs> so it really, it puts, you know, something that you're enjoying, it can really put you in a tough decision. You know, as tough as what kind of comic book am I gonna buy? Decision can be, you know, but. And they also – don't they have omnibuses that collect a couple of the hardcovers as well? Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, yeah so it's depends, like – Depends on the title, yeah. Well, I'm talking about The Walking Dead specifically. I'm pretty yeah, sure they have – hardcovers – I think each hardcover is two trades. Right, and I think there's an omnibus. I don't know if it's called that, but I think there's a collection that's like the first two volume of hardcovers. Maybe. I know they did that with Invincible. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say I've seen yeah. that with Invincible. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it adds another dynamic to waiting for the trade. It's like, okay, you're going to bite the bullet and say, okay, I'm done with the flop, you know, the, the monthlies. I'm going to go with the trade. And then it's like, okay, do I do the the six-month paperback trade or do I do the yearly, you know, hardcover trade or do I do the, you know, once a year, once every 18 months, you know, double hardcover trade? I mean, it just – at some point, I guess it's just like anything else. I mean, it's like it's like technology. It's like the next laptop or the next – you know, computer or, you know, whatever it is. At some point, you just got to bite the bullet and say, this is what I'm going with and I'm sticking with it. And if something else comes better, you know, better, then I'll either buy it or not, you know. Um, it depends. Sometimes these trades go out of print and sometimes you get lucky and you could flip them on eBay or flip them somewhere else and maybe get back what you paid for it and then it's not such a big deal. But for the most part, you know, you're stuck. I mean, you end up double, triple dipping. You're you're just kind of stuck. Yeah, I, can, I really enjoy, like, um, one of the the hardcovers I've been collecting pretty pretty regularly is uh, Nexus. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that at all. It was a comic, a indie indie comic from Mike Barron and Steve Rude from the '80s. Very cool sci-fi superhero stuff. But uh, Dark Horse released it in hardcover, uh, archive editions, forty bucks a pop. And I wanted them very very badly because Nexus is a very very good comic. And I was able to find them catch as catch can at. Um, you know, it shows or whatnot. And then, like, just like you're saying, you know, you have to bite the bullet. And then, you know, they're coming out, I guess, now with a, um, a showcase, showcase edition type thing, you know, where it's all in one thing, but it's black and white. And that would have been a lot more readable than this archive edition, you know. So, I mean, it goes all these different ways. And then if it's something you really want to read, it's like, am I going to buy the hardcover as soon as the hardcover comes out? Or am I going to wait for the trade, you know, or the actual trade paperback? Or, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, I mean, I don't know. I've bought Kingdom Come like three different times, three different ways, I think, when I think about it. Yeah. So I, bought yeah. It, so I bought it when it came out. I bought the trade, and I ended up buying the Absolute as well because it had all the goodies and the extras. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some there's some stuff that I don't mind double dipping because, A, there's – sometimes there's just a long period of time that goes in between, and or, or I'll, you know, I'll wait a longer period of time and not make a big deal about it. But Old Man Logan's a perfect example. Um yeah, I've been getting the, the the monthlies as they come out. I've been collecting Wolverine for years and years. I've got the 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 second, the most recent run. I think I'm missing two issues out of out of 71 or 72, wherever they're at now. Um, but when I I guarantee when that thing comes out in a you know in the in the nice hardcover version, I'm gonna snag it because it's just such an awesome story and it's it's isolated. So I don't feel like my crazy insane collector's mentality won't really bark at me too bad that. Well, I got that one hardcover. Now I need to get all the hardcovers because it's 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 kind of an isolated event. Because normally I just have this insane collector's mentality that if I start and get one, I got to get them all. So, does anything, Russ, in your collecting mentality, like does anything or any voice speak to you to say, um, this is crazy, or like this is com- not not like um, not like that you like spend exorbitant amounts, obviously, but like what as a collector? Because I'm not a collector. I'm just you know what I mean? Like, what, like, do you have a... <coughs> Original pages. <coughs> oh, my God. I just, oh, I tell you that, I gotta watch my page. Okay. <laughs> sketches. sketches. <laughs> okay. Uh, as a... Original... Mighty Bugs. <coughs> Sorry. Right. Um, it's a disease, okay? And you need to accommodate me. <laughs> yes, it is. I have it as well. But, like, because, like, the collector mentality for floppies and, um, is, t- is really, really foreign to me. 
But I also know, like, and this, you know, this goes back to our Days of the Future Past episode, when, you know, you've got a heck of a run, but, like, do you look at your bookshelf with your hardcovers as something that's, like, comparable to your floppy collection, or, like, is, are, or is, like, your hardcover and trade collection, like, does it quote-unquote not count as far as collection stuff goes, because it's not the original one? No, because it, it, it's, I mean, I guess I keep them separate. Number one, it's, there is, it, I, I truly recognize it as a form of mental illness. I mean, really, because there's no, I mean, it's almost like I, if I start something, I have to finish it. You know, I have to get the whole thing. You know, I, if I start with a series, you know, I've got to keep it going. The, the only thing that's got me now is I think the, the age and the era of long runs is gone. I don't think you're going to see too many titles starting up nowadays that are going to run for five or six hundred issues. I really think after so after after a certain period of time, they're gonna they're gonna nix them. They're gonna start over at number one, or they're gonna tweak the title and start over at number one, or they're gonna change the concept and start over, or whatever the case may be. I think I think there's gonna be maybe you know ten or twelve you know great runs out there of these books, and and occasionally you'll see a fallback like you did with Thor, where they went back for, for number six hundred. And I think that was just to kind of fall into people go, oh, 600, you know, and they, and they, and they buy it. But, you know, obviously the reason they started again with Thor number one was it was a number one book. Um, so for some of the stuff, I'm, I'm, my brain, A, I think it's, it's, a, it's a function of age. I think I, I'm getting older in my life and kind of reevaluating priorities and just kind of realizing that I don't need to be this crazy all the time. And that I, I realize that if something starts anew, that it's probably not going to last more than 25, maybe 50 issues, um, and and for me to have that as a hardcover collection and throw it on my shelf and have it look nice is acceptable. But their stuff, I mean, I will tell you right now, no matter how bad Uncanny X-Men gets, I will not stop collecting it. I can't. It's like, I, that's what I'm saying, it's almost like a form of mental illness. I, I have to keep getting it because, you know, I go back to how big, my, you know, how long my run is. Yeah you know, how long my run is, and it's like, man, I don't want to interrupt that. And to me, I can't, I couldn't reconcile the fact that, okay, I have Uncanny X-Men from, you know, 140 up to 5, you know, 15, and from 515 on, I have hardcovers. I just, I can't, like, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I don't know, doing something wrong. I, it's, it's just a strange feeling I get. I, I just have to keep going with it. It's almost like a sense of pride, you know. I almost think it's it's almost like kind of like bragging rights, you know. Hopefully, one day my you know my kids and my grandkids will appreciate the fact that you know they, they're going to be able to open up these long boxes and and there's just going to be just you know issue after issue after issue that they can just kind of marvel at. So, can I ask you a question, Russ? Do you uh, leave? Do you put your uh, issues in bags and boards? Yep, everyone. See, that's the part of the mentality. That's one of the reasons I do collect trades is because. You know, I, I if I have a showcase or if I have an essentials or something, I don't care if I take it with me, you know, to work or if I read it, you know, on the go or in the car or whatever. But if I had those original issues, I mean, naturally, I'd probably be, you know, wearing gloves and tweezers. I would be so paranoid about that, you know. I just um that part of the that part of the, I've tried to get away. I used to have that mentality, you know, and now I've gotten away from it. So it's just kind of interesting to me. That, um, I mean, I understand resale value and and the addition and all that. I just um, I, I guess for me, it's just more about reading the story and being able to read the story over and over again without 
you know, worrying about creasing a page or smudging my fingerprint on the, you know, the cover, or, you know, I just, uh, I can't, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've, I've, I no longer feel that, you know, my comic collection is going to either support my retirement or, you know, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, I, I realize that, you know, if I, if I sold all, you know, 6,000 of my books or whatever, you know, I'd be lucky to get, you know, probably two, three grand for it on a, you know, on a good day. You know, so I've kind of, I've kind of gone past that, you know, where it's not, I'm not collecting to, to resell. I'm collecting, you know, just, just to collect. And one day when I'm old and retired, I can sit through and just, you know, have a bunch of cool stuff that I can read. But then you'll drop your glasses and you won't be able to read them. And you, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Twilight Zone. <laughs> the Battlestar Galactica finale by the Legion of Dudes. Hey everybody, John, Ken, and Russ here. We just finished up with the Battlestar Galactica series finale, and we thought we'd run a little audio blog and uh, give our thoughts. It, it literally ended uh, about 20 minutes ago for Ken and I, and about 10 minutes ago for Russ on the TiVo. So uh, how about we do some general impressions? It's freshest in your mind, Russ. Why don't you go first? I think the first hour, hour and a half, was maybe some of the best television I've ever seen in my entire life. And I know that's probably a slight exaggeration, but it was just well executed, well put together, the action, all the stuff going on, the effects. It was just like a roller coaster ride. In the last half hour, I think I'm still, my brain is still trying to, to kind of digest um, what happened. I, I think I still have a lot of questions as to what's going on, but overall, I think it was, I, I mean, I, I definitely enjoyed it overall, but I think, I think it's going to take my brain to kind of decompress a little bit on it to get that ending and probably conversations with several people that get their opinions on what that ending meant, but, but interesting. Very, very interesting. Spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think that goes, that goes without saying. It's funny that you mentioned that, Russ. The first hour and a half, I think I looked down at the clock. Immediately what went through my head was, this is really awesome, but they haven't answered a damn thing yet, and there's only like 40 minutes left. You know, the, the whole first hour and whatever was rescuing Hera. You know, which was, again, great TV, but it left kind of a real compressed period of time for all of the answers that we were looking for, which um, not all of them got answered. I was just telling Ken before we went on air that uh, I kind of felt like some of it was a setup for the the plan because they didn't really tell us the Cylon plan. <laughs> yeah, after four years of, you know, the intro piece saying, you know, then they have a plan and, you know, you, to not have that revealed in the show, it's like, all right, did you run out of time, or what's the deal with that? With that, so that that just was interesting. I'm not gonna say it bugged me or bothered me, but whatever. There's a lot in this show that I was very happy with. I actually really, really enjoyed it. I kind of thought it was not obvious, but expected that you know when she you know, started punching the keys. I think we were lying, kind of led to believe that the notes, the music was gonna lead her, lead us to Hera, but in fact it led us to our Earth and not the original Cylon Earth. And so as she was, you know, remembering the music, of course, as it came obvious, and it was actually a very well-cut scene. I really enjoyed the way they cut that together. The other scene that I loved and was probably my favorite scene of the whole thing was mixing in the visions that Rosalind shared with Athena 
with what was really happening, finding Hera, uh, having Six and Baltar find her, going in, and, and, and I got chills when they cut between the, the, the glowing five figures in the opera house along with um, the final five up on the top of the, the bridge. And having that, that, that vision basically come true in, in that way was just really just cool to see, and that is probably my single favorite scene in the whole, the whole show. Yeah, that was definitely well done. So, so what do you guys think about? Well, let's let's start with Starbuck. Are we supposed to believe? Do you think that she actually did die on Earth, and then the Starbuck that came back after that was then an angel? Yes, that's my that's my opinion, my belief at this point, and I think that's what we're supposed to believe. It's supposed to know, Russ. Yeah, you know, at first I thought maybe she was just a a head Starbuck. But well, she, she was. Physical... But, she, but she was. I mean, I mean, really. She, yeah. It, 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 she, it was, she was. She was a common though. She was common to everyone, really. But she was exactly right. what Baltar and Six were to to each other this whole time. But she had actual physical manifestations. So that that was a little. I mean, that's what kind of threw me off a little bit. Right. That was um, meant to throw us off the off the chase. Yeah. Right. But but yeah, I think ultimately that's that's my impression of her is that she died when she crash landed there. Yeah. When. And, um, when uh, she jumped through the uh, through the eye of the storm uh, back in, God, that was what the end of season three or the middle of season three when she did that, only to come back yeah. at the end when they first introduced all along the watchtower, and when they came back to the beginning of four, she had a perfect ship. You know, she was you know nothing wrong with her, and we all thought back to the original Galactica series with the uh, the beans, you know, and, and when Apollo and Starbuck when they're all white uniforms, the whole deal. We thought back to that, and I guess it's kind of proven that's exactly what would happen in this in, in this case. So what about the head, Baltar and Six? I got that they were both, like, I don't know, we'll call it sentient. I guess, you know, they're both kind of head people that, that or angels or, or whatever. But it threw me for a loop at the end when they showed up in the future, at like that, those versions of yeah, them. Yeah, and then that, at that point it didn't to me, uh, because I think for the last four years we were led to believe, or we just simply assumed because we weren't given enough information, that they were there, they existed because of Cylon programming, that they were either remnants or you know implants or whatever. Um, and now it's been revealed basically in this episode, and I don't think we've got any real, real, hint, of, real hint of this before, that they are, for lack of a better word, agents of whatever this universal entity guiding hand is that does apparently does not like to be called God. Yeah, I thought that was, that was interesting. I, I kind of, granted, like I said, like I said, it's only been about 15 minutes, but at first I thought maybe, my, my first reaction was, is that since everybody is descended from, in some way, shape, or form, the, you know, the Baltar or the, you know, or the Six, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Hera was proof that, that it is possible for them to, to, to co-mingle and procreate, that it's just, they, they, they were the, the manifestation or whatever of everyone on Earth because they all had a little bit of peace, you know, of them if you go back far enough. You know, I kind of thought about it a little more, and then after hearing, you know, what they said about, oh, he doesn't like being called that, it's like, ah. And they kind of looked like, they kind of came across as kind of cool and collected, you know, kind of like agents or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, like they're, you know, on a mission, so to speak. Yeah, and they, and they also kind of know more about what's going on than any of us. And obviously, they're, being them, them, those characters and those actors, didn't throw me off because that was strictly there for the audience's benefit, I mean, so you know who they who they were. And they always were dressed a little... You know, slicker or fancier than than everyone else around them, anyway. So you kind of knew that they were definitely the the head characters. I like how it was it was Hera's remains, her fossilized remains that they found, and I like how they did say you know carries the common traits of everyone, meaning 
human and Cylon. So apparently, uh, I'm assuming that means the machines, like I said, did continue to get blended to uh, to be bred in and probably become less and less and become more and more organic. Although I'm really not sure how they never and they never really explained. And I kind of really expect them to how not how a machine could be made with a human, but just because I was just the biological components. But does the the, the hybrid, the human silent child, have any machine traits, or just simply is all biological, but just happens to also have the organic component of Cylon? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's how I took it. Is that the, the skin jobs are pretty are primarily flesh and blood if yeah. if they have any. Well, they you know, must. We, we saw it in like season two, uh, but we saw Athena basically stick a wire in her arm to make make a connection with the ship. So they must have yeah. some kind of either machine or electrical or some kind of component where they're able to do stuff like that. Well, and the whole lighten up of the back when... Yeah. Unless it's all bioelectrical, yeah. bioelectrical, in which case I guess they could do it no matter what they do. What did you guys think of all of the backstories and how they kind of brought it together? You know, Rosalind with her little uh, one-night stand and, and how it led her to the position she was at and, you know, the whole uh, <laughs> never-ending strip joint scene. You know you know, you know what? That scene paid off at the very end because here is Ellen explaining what she wants. She just wants to be with, with Saul. Doesn't matter if it's, you know, in a tent, on the street, whatever. And then you cut back to Earth when that she's going to exact exactly, exactly what she wants. Literally, they're going to be in a tent, just the two of them, and she looks sad almost like, you know, be careful, kind of almost like be careful what you wish for. Kind of thing, that was that was and that was right before commercial break, and that was kind of what the way I took that particular moment. But I just like seeing with all of them, it was just kind of where they were right before all this happened, and and how it got them in there. You know, Adama almost almost he was Adama was that close to not being on that ship that day. He was about to be retire, he was about to take this job, and he's like, you know, frack this, I'm out. He was that close to not being on that ship. all of them. You know, if it wasn't for that one night stand, if it wasn't for Rosalind's family being killed by a drunk driver, she wouldn't have gone that day. She wouldn't have had those whatever happened to her that made her click that I'm going to go join the campaign, she wouldn't have been there. You know, all these little things that happened in such a way they did that any one of those people would not have been where they were the day the silence attacked. But how did, how did um, I, I totally agree with everything you just said, but how does the, the Starbuck and Lee uh, flashback, it, it doesn't really match up with all the others uh, un- unless they're just trying to say that you know, unless they were just trying to show you that Lee and Starbuck always had something for each other, even before the brother, who, who's the brother, Zach, I'm forgetting Zach, the name yeah. Right now. Zach, yeah. You know, even before he died. Well, I think there was that, and that just kind of gave it a little more punch to when she just literally disappeared, even though she gave him a warning that I'm done, I'm, I'm not coming back. Uh, it gave a little more punch to that, it, it, a little more, another piece of their relationship. And we kind of knew they had, you know, some kind of, like, tension, sexual tension, or otherwise between the two of them before, and we knew that she was engaged in Zach. We knew all that before, but just having seen that moment, the moment, the night they met, and it just kind of all, you know, just kind of clicked together. And and I'm, you know, just the way he comes home and this, this, this pigeon's in his apartment, he literally destroys his apartment trying to get it out, and then when he wakes up, it just kind of flies away. I don't know if that was meant to be, you know, a metaphor of Starbuck just flying away. That's how it took it to me. It just gave a little more of a, it turned the, the the period into an exclamation point on the end of their relationship once she finally left. Well, and I think the other big thing to come out of that is, well, A, it kind of set up. I mean, obviously we knew there was tension between the, the family, you know, the, the brothers, the father. I think it kind of helped set it up a little more that for as, for as much as they had tension in the beginning, you know, that the Admiral and Lee are two sides of the same coin. 
that they they have this sense of duty. I mean, when Lee said, oh, it just got me four years of college, I gave four years back, I didn't buy that for a second. That was the whole, I'm not like my father, how dare you call me out. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what that I, was. I took, the other thing I think it emphasized and, and kind of put in, you know, put another bullet point on is Starbucks' whole thing about, I'm not afraid. You know, when I go up there, you know, yeah, I know that I'm probably not going to come back and there's a good chance I'm going to die. But, but you know, honest to goodness, I'm I'm not afraid. I have no fear when I get in that cockpit and I, I shoot out that tube. And that just totally took Lee for a loop. One thing that I um, that I liked, and this could be me confusing lost watchmen and everything <laughs> else. But it was it was very interesting to me that, you know, they were about to make the deal that would have reset the cycle, most likely. Uh You're right. And the very human emotion of chief causes the change in the cycle. He chokes her out and now they start shooting at each other. The deal never gets done. Now Starbucks jumps them out. That's a little piece of chance, you know, just with the that one raptor find every single missile it had at the at the colony, and I find it kind of a little convenient that 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 just one raptor was able to destroy the whole colony. It, that that moment you're saying is like you know, like you're saying, you know, eventually something will happen, and and in this case, so it was it was that exactly. No, I was gonna say that was just like a almost like a I'm trying to think almost like a Quentin Tarantino moment. You know, where everything just kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. You know, it's just like everything's fine, and then all of a sudden it's just like all hell breaks loose. And, you know, the minute he chokes her out, they just, they're like, oh, it's, it's all set up, it's all a trap, and it's just bullets start yep. flying, and people what? start ducking. It's like, oh man, this thing has just gone completely sideways. All right, let me ask you. Did, did, I was disappointed when Cavill didn't die I, I, before that last commercial break when they made the deal. I'm like, oh, I felt cheated. But did it seem out of character for him to, to, to put a bullet in his head to take his own life like that? I mean, did you guys think that, or did he figure it's over? I'm gonna do it myself. I'm yeah. not gonna let somebody else do it. I took it as we lost, and I will not be captured by the humans. Yeah, I'm, I, I won't be. I mean, Grant, this is a guy who literally a new Caprica. He literally cut his own throat so so he could be resurrected and get out of the situation he was in. So he's not afraid to kill himself, but he knew he wasn't coming back when he did that. Yeah, didn't he give a final order? Wasn't that part of it? Like basically, he kind of gave the order to just. You know, everyone all out attack and say, "Okay, I'm done." Was it, did, I couldn't tell what he said right before he. he yeah, he said gun. something. I mean, it was it was um, it wasn't Leo, but it was the other one, the president's assistant from the back in the pilot, um, who basically said the fire, the ceasefire's over, everyone open fire. Yeah, I don't know what uh, what uh, Cavill I, I, said. Yeah, I just took it as he gave the order to attack and that, and okay, I'm done. That's it. Hey, did you guys catch during the lie detector scene that it was the Cylon doctor who was given administering the test? Like, he was actually the technician there. I think that's no, what no, I didn't. Yeah, no, I, 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 didn't I think I think it was him. I, I'm pretty sure it was him. It was it was just a quick scene, but I'm like, oh, was that him? And I I didn't dare rewind it to find out. I, I'll go back and check, but it just seemed like it was. So what did you what did what was your guys thought on Hera? It just seemed like they go through this incredible, you know, mission to to rescue her. They get her back, and it was like, I, I guess in the end, the point was that she she was kind of considered the the branch point of humanity, I guess the link between, yeah. I mean, you know, Neanderthal and, you know, modern man, so to speak. So to speak. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure another Cylon human pairing that, you know, they, they, they kind of beat over the head with the idea was that, that love was the missing component. You know, they had, they had the, the two had to really love each other in order for the pairing to work, to be able to produce a child. So I'm sure another Cylon human couple could have done the same thing. But I think without the symbolism of the surviving child of this one being was key to making, 
everything happened, just getting out of there alive, you know, this rallying point, if you will. You know, I, I think that was much more important than her, her actual presence, if that makes any sense. I don't mean to say she's not important. She certainly is. But I, I, I don't think it was something that couldn't be reproduced. I just think it would have been harder if she wasn't there, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it just, I don't know, it just seemed like she had more, rel- you know, more importance, like she was mystical or, I don't know, there was something special about yeah. her that was going to have, you know, like the key to the, you know, the, the, the last piece to the puzzle kind of thing. And it, 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 it just kind of, it just seemed kind of odd. What do you think of Rosalind's death, death scene? Just kind of passing on, like just the way she did, just kind of, you saw her hand go limp and that was it. I like the scene. I thought that very moment was a little abrupt. You know, I thought it was, I thought it was a little awkward that the Admiral didn't know she was dead. Like, I, I, you know, I guess I pictured it as like her, him talking her through it and her dying like with him or in his arms yep. or something to that effect. So she just kind of like went limp, and he just continued his sentence <laughs> until, uh, you know, until he figured it out. I guess. I kind of liked. I kind of. I, I I did like how he, uh, you know, he put his ring on her finger. You know, I didn't know how to take that at first because I mean, he probably something he intended to do eventually anyway uh, was to was to marry her. You know, or at least you know, in, on some symbolic level. But did they ever cover or ever talk about his relationship with with his wife? Like, was she already dead, or did she die in the attack? Because it's almost like you know, I mean, I think I'm talking early on. It was it was spoken about a little bit, but I don't they, have the memory that you guys do. Were they divorced? But he I, still wore the ring, I, unless that was that uh, wasn't a wedding ring. That was uh, some other kind. It looked like a wedding band. Yeah, I just watched the two-hour miniseries, and I thought because I, I thought he, I'm almost positive that Adama asked Lee when he came on board. Yeah, how's your point, mother how, or something? Your yeah, mother? yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. now. I remember during the whole law and thing. Yeah, she's remarried, and you know he's. I guess the father, the the, the new stepdad or something, is either he was either a lawyer or yeah, a, something like that. Like somebody, like big 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 business, big shot or something like that. His grandfather, uh, right? His grandfather was a lawyer. Adama's right? father was, you know, Lee's grandfather was a lawyer. I remember that's where he got the right. law books from, so he could defend Baltar. But yeah, I seem to remember something to the effect of like. When they used to talk about Zack's death a lot early on, I think maybe they insinuated that once that that kind of pulled the marriage apart after, you know, Lee kind of uh, not Lee, um, the Admiral kind of went off the handle a little bit when Zack died, and that kind of pulled the right. marriage apart. I th- I think, or I could be creating that from like little nuances that they put in, but yeah, it just kind of struck me as not betrayal, but a little. I guess disrespectful. If he felt like he needed to wear the ring all these years to just take it off and give it to another woman, no matter, regardless of how much he cared for her, it just seems like, you know, it just seemed odd at that particular moment for me to do that, for him to do that. If he didn't choose to wear it for all those years, I wouldn't feel that way. But the fact that he felt he, need, he needed to wear it, it just seemed like he felt a connection to his, to his first wife. So I'm trying to think, what were our major questions coming in? Obviously Starbuck, which uh, I'll, I'll take it as explained. In not so many words, but right. but we got the idea. I'm pretty con- I think we're pretty confident that there was a theory that Daniel, this 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 other Cylon, this thirteenth Cylon that they created, who was who was killed by Cavill's crew, is not her father. And I'm guessing that Eric Stoltz is playing Dan- that same Daniel model in the Caprica series coming up, right? Yeah, it looks that way. Yeah, I don't know because the Caprica series is set. It's prequel, but I, I'm. You- it's, yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking one survived. I think that that theory is pretty much people are like, yeah, one survived. But it looks like he's basically resurrecting 
his daughter based on the trailer we saw today. I don't know if you skipped it or all, Russ. Um, yeah, I need to go back and, and catch yeah, it again. Yeah, there was yeah, a, there a trailer talking about it, and I guess like you know his daughter and somebody else's daughter are killed in an accident. He's like, I can bring them back, and he basically basically makes you know it what looks like to be humanoid silence of his daughter and this other one who I'm guessing might be not Adama, but that family because i thought it was supposed to center around the, the adamas yeah about the two families yeah, yeah. It's, it's the two families yeah one of them being the adamas yeah so that so. that might be we'll see, interesting how that comes up that's my guess that, that is the daniel that we've been introduced to in in this show yeah that'd be that'd be interesting yeah. and and then of course we got it seems like it keeps getting pushed out i thought originally it was supposed to be a week or two later we we're supposed to get that, that the plan two-hour movie well plan. We're, we're supposed to get the the the, the caprica two-hour on dvd in april and right. and then yeah the plan is the fall and then Probably, you know, January or so, probably the same time that Galactus has been starting, we'll probably get Caprica as a series. Yeah, they said 2010, but it, it's funny because at one point it was supposed to be June for the plan, and now they're saying fall, so... Um, well, I guess Siffy so, wants to uh, spread out their uh, their programming <laughs> now. We do have uh, Yeah, yeah. I was kind of disappointed I, uh, that Halo didn't die. Like, I thought that was a noble death and everything and a good time, and then he's just kind of walking around with a cane. Yeah, I I thought, too. I was actually, but when I expected him to die, and then when I saw them, like, in the background, the three of them walking up, and I saw the one had a cane, I'm like, oh, he lived. I was actually pleased that he lived. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that Halo made it through. And obviously, you know, not unscathed. I kind of knew, I thought it was kind of interesting that Galen decided, okay, I'm just going to go off on my own. He's going to the Highlands, going to Scotland. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I thought that was kind of cool. That that scene at the beginning though, when they crashed, when they literally rammed into the yeah uh, to the thing, <laughs> that was just really you know, cool. I, they were saying that like the whole this whole ten episodes has been so light on battles and things like that because they were saving up for the end. And I yeah, they they spent some money on this this these two hours. Yeah, they 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 pulled out all the stops. And then when the when the Galactica jumped again, and it was like I, I it just I just pictured like a lowrider in space because that thing was just like. All that buckled and yeah, when they can't jump out. Yeah. Now, how how why is it that that archaeologist had not did not find any raptor parts or you know a Adamus viper and that stuff because you know there even though they sent the fleet out into the sun, there's a couple raptors that that were down there spreading people out. Hell, Adamus raptors down there at the very least. I just took it as they burned them, they destroyed them, you know, disintegrated them or, or whatever that they disposed of them. I mean, now obviously you're not going to dispose of every last little piece and you'd think they'd find something but yeah one thing i liked about the way it ended was one of the pieces of the original galactica history was the idea they they, they built like the the lords of cobalt and our our and their mythology based on our egyptian mythologies and that you know the idea being that their colony basically started you know civilization on earth and that's basically what happened here that's that's basically what they did you know it's it's you know that's why we they're explaining why we have you know the same Greek and Roman gods, or whatever, Roman gods, as they show in Galactica, because yeah. you know they they passed that mythology on. So that and was they, they uh, didn't come to Earth and and start riding flying motorcycles. So that's that's always a plus. Yeah, yeah, they didn't come to modern day Earth. I, I thought it was cool that when the fleet was headed towards the sun, they played the oh the yes or- orchestral original theme. That is, the, I think, only the, the second time show. we've heard that because we heard it. It was the um, the fanfare during in the, the uh, in the miniseries. It was the fanfare during the uh, flyby of the of the Vipers. Yeah, that the, yeah. that the band was playing, which was which was a great touch then too, and it was a great way to, to kind of throw that in there and end it as well. Sure, and I thought it was cool on the Homeworld or the, the equivalent to the to the Cylon Homeworld that we got the you know Mark One or Mark Two you know original 
model Cylons. And then the, oh, you know, that the was good. One. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that makes sense too. Cool. I mean, you're back at their home base. Sure, they're going to have some of the older models out there as well. And that was great to see those. The CGI yeah. on some of those were a little sketchy. The though, CGI I in say. general was there's so much on there. I mean, even like when the guns popped out of the colony, I'm like, oh, all right, here comes the CGI. I mean, basses look more real than some of that stuff. But you know, whatever. I was enjoying it. Yeah, what I kept trying to catch a gun for it, and I, a gun for it, and I thought I saw it at one point. But remember how in the original Battlestar, the Cylons had on their rifles, they had the serrated plastic-looking, you know, bayonet or whatever. I, I didn't even think to look at that. I don't know. I kept trying to get a glimpse and see if they had that on there on these, and I couldn't. I thought at one point I saw that on there, and then I, 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 I didn't get a good glimpse of it again, so I couldn't tell. But I thought, now that'd be even cooler if they, you know, added that component to it. And then, of course, Adamus flyby at the end. I thought was really cool. Yeah, I mean, he cool. you know got it, got in his Viper, launched it off, took the you know big circle around the, you know, the ship and the fleet. All right. Well, we wanted this to be real quick. Yeah. Want to just wrap it up real quick? This is a quick synopsis, um, just to give us our thoughts. Overall, Russ, do you feel satisfied with the ending? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think it leaves you know questions for you, but I think in general, you know, I, th- I thought it was pretty cool that you know they, they focused on breaking the cycle, you know, which yeah. is the whole point. Is right. This all happens again. So the fact that they you know landed on the planet and said, you know what, all this technology has just gotten us in trouble time and time again. So we're just going to try it this time by you know starting with nothing. So I, th- I thought that was kind of cool. cool. John, what do you think? I, I was satisfied. I thought it was a great show. I, I love the series, obviously. I have a little bit of a problem of too many things being explained by, you know, uh, under, the, under the umbrella of that's how God wanted it. You know, I think it's easy to explain away a lot of stuff if, if that's how they're going to, if that's the route they're going to go. I always keep TV, you know, in relation. And, like, even So-So Galactica is 50 times better than, like, yeah. anything else that's on. Yeah. So I'm definitely satisfied. We talked a little bit about that point before we started recording it. If they threw it in there in the last this last episode or even these last ten episodes, I'd be right there with you. But that's a theme that they've been going with literally since the very beginning. This this idea of, you know, a God versus gods and, and uh and a plan for humanity. So it's not like they just fleshed it out. Sure, there's been criticism that over the last, you know, couple seasons they got less away from the space battles and less away from the survival, more towards that more for lack of a better word, supernatural side of it. But I think that's just the progression of the show. I mean, they had to, you know, start finding common ground. Part that was part of finding the common ground with the silence to begin with. So uh, it, it all that all worked for me very well because it all fit with the story that was being told over the last four years. And uh, that's basically my synopsis. I felt very satisfied by the ending. Uh, I got the answers I needed, and um, yeah, I'm 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 good to go. I'm I enjoy the ride. So when Lost ends next year, we're gonna have to find a new show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully there'll be something out there to replace it. I don't know. Lately, every time a show ends, I'm happy because it's one less thing I have to try to find time for. Is that it? I think so. I think so. Just quick and dirty. Thanks for indulging us. John Russ, thanks for getting on. And uh, thanks for listening to our brief little audio blog on the finale of Battlestar Galactica. Good night. Good night.